Hi, whenever you're listening to me, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. I'm Hari Arakali and this is today's Tech Briefing. In this program... So in a nutshell, we kind of, uh, what Brainsight AI is building is a neuroinformatics platform called Voxelbox, which allows you to create like the Google map of the brain. That's after these headlines. Between 40% and 70% of school-going children in seven large states don't have access to digital devices, according to a report by India's Ministry of Education. These states are Assam, Andhra Pradesh, Bihar, Gujarat, Jharkhand, Madhya Pradesh, and Uttarakhand. The report, Initiatives by the School Education Sector in 2021, shows that some states are worse off than others, but also remains incomplete, as states such as Uttar Pradesh and West Bengal are yet to provide data the Indian Express reports. Google has announced a new monetization policy for its advertisers, publishers, and YouTube creators that will prohibit ads for and monetization of content that contradicts well-established scientific consensus around the existence and causes of climate change, the internet search giant said in a blog post yesterday. This includes content referring to climate change as a hoax or a scam, claims denying that long-term trends show the global climate is warming, and claims denying that greenhouse gas emissions or human activity contribute to climate change. Apple's rules requiring software developers to use its in-app payment system are anti-competitive, the Netherlands Authority for Consumers and Markets has found, Reuters reports. The Dutch Competition Authority has ordered Apple to make changes, according to the report. Two months ago, South Korea became the first country to ban Apple and Google from forcing developers to use their proprietary payment systems on which the companies charge up to 30% fees on in-app sales. Rebel Foods, which operates a large network of delivery-only kitchens for orders placed online in nearly a dozen markets, is the latest Indian startup to become a unicorn. The company said it has raised $175 million in its Series F funding round that valued it at $1.4 billion up from about $800 million last year, TechCrunch reports. The latest investment was led by Qatar Investment Authority, with participation from existing investors Kotio and Evolvance. Rimjim Agrawal has a PhD from India's National Institutes of Mental Health and Neurosciences, and she is a researcher who has studied the application of AI and machine learning to the problems of mental health among her many accomplishments. Lena Emanuel is a technologist who has worked with large tech companies as well as governments on the use of tech in healthcare. An entrepreneurship program brought them together and thus was born their deep tech startup BrainSight AI, developing a neuroinformatics platform. I caught up with the two founders to learn more about how BrainSight AI's software is helping neurosurgeons to be better prepared and psychiatrists to get a better idea of what's ailing their patients. Here's more. Lena, Dr. Imjim, uh, thank you so much for making time for this podcast. Uh, welcome. When you uh, started BrainSight, uh, what was the idea that you started out with? And uh, maybe you can give us a sense of uh, what the company has evolved into today. Yeah. So in a nutshell, we kind of, uh, what BrainSight AI is building is a neuroinformatics platform called Voxelbox, which allows you to create like the Google map of the brain, 
when we started out, um, the basic technology remained the same, really building out the traffic map of the of the brain. Now, when we started out, we started at looking at cases in psychiatry. So one of the papers that Rinship had published was on um, schizophrenia diagnosis using resting state fMRI. So we really looked at that market segment. What is it that we could do in the in the psychiatric disorder space? And in this, what we also realized is that the World Psychiatry Association, there are there, there are papers like the World uh, and Future of Psychiatry, which talk about neuroimaging being a part of the whole gamut of uh, um, gamut of tests that a patient that gives a comprehensive view into a person. But it was a little farther off. It was still something that people thought of in the research realm and weren't uh, at the place to adopt it clinically. And that's when we started looking at other segments. And so we started looking at neurologists uh, who are looking at dementia and other geriatric disorders. And uh, the same technology really is one of the earliest indicators of dementia. So we, in fact, got a Government of India grant to be able to look at these functional patterns for uh, dementia. But at the same time, what we we started getting a lot of incoming requests from neurosurgeons who wanted to use this um, same technology to be able to understand patterns of the brain before surgery. So being able to, especially for patients who are either paralyzed or comatose and can't do the usual task-based fMRI, which is another modality, which requires the patient to be really crisp. So if you're really old, really young, or paralyzed or comatose, you can't do that modality. And hence, um, what doctors, neurosurgeons needed was a way to get to this functionality in a non-invasive, easy manner. And that's where we realized that we have something which we can immediately give to them. And that is what we're focusing on immediately. Yeah, uh, you have mentioned something called uh, fMRI uh, on your website as well. I think it would help you give us a brief explanation of what fMRI is and what's the significance of this technique uh, to your platform? Yeah, so functional MRI could be of two types. One is resting state and one is star space. So in resting state, people are not performing any activity as uh, they are inside the MRI machine. But they are just lying inside the machine and uh, the machine is recording the oxygen level in different parts of the brain. Now, if a certain part of the brain is uh, working, then the oxygen supply in that area will be more and that is what MRI machine will be capturing as a video in a video form for like 7 minutes or 10 minutes. However, the same principles are applied when functional MRI is happening but uh, task-based functional MRI is happening. So, um, but somebody will be performing a task. Let's say there will be a speech task. So, a person will be saying a sentence which is arriving on the screen inside the MRI machine and they will be performing a certain task and uh, that could be tapping off the fingers or saying something or recognizing a face. So there are different kinds of tasks that is given to a patient and then is when the brain activity is recorded. So it is very focused to a particular part of the brain to recognize a very particular part of the brain. That is the difference between task-based and resting state functional MRI. And so essentially what it gives you is adding on to what Trimchim said, it gives you things like your language network, which parts of the brain are activated 
uh, when a person is speaking or which parts of the brain are activated when a person is performing a sensory motor task. That's, these networks of, in your brain are the key to be able to kind of understand how to do surgery. Um, now, I'll just add one more thing to what Rimjim was saying. Um, the difference between the resting state and task-based is extremely important. So task-based is something that has been happening for quite a few years now, actually a few decades now. But when you look at the brain at the resting state, it takes up 95% of your brain energy budget. When you do a task, it's only a 5% spike, which is seen. Now, Till today, because neurosurgeons, neurologists, and researchers in general were only looking at task-based, you could only figure out what five percent, what is that five percent spike in energy. But if you want to look at what is really happening, the intrinsic activity in the brain, that's where you need tools for the ninety-five percent, and that's where resting state fMRI comes into picture. Okay, uh, so give us a sense of. Uh what the core technology is that you have developed, uh, which you call uh, Voxel Box. What is at the heart of Voxel Box? A bunch of things. <laughs> so Voxel Box essentially is, as I said, a neuroinformatics platform. It has four major technologies that are kind of coming together in it. One is, uh, and each of them is a PhD in itself, and Rimjim will actually talk about it. So the first is really, signal processing. You've got these 86 billion neurons in the brain talking to each other. You need to be able to, to capture the correct pattern which um, while removing all different kinds of noises. So maybe it's the respiratory noise, um, it's the cardiac noise, etc. So that's one part and getting that signal processing right itself is one big part of it. The second big part of what we do uh, is the AI on top of it. So think of it like this, that you've got a 10-minute pattern you've identified and now you need to, it's a dance which is going on in the brain and what you need to do is typify that uh, dance. Is it 70% Bhangra? Is it 30% uh, Bali? Which is similar to asking the question that looking at this pattern, are they more matching a set of dementia patients' connectivity patterns or is it more matching that of healthy? So that's the second part of the technology. The third part is all this computational neuroscience work that is done is needs, it's very mathematical. So it, no doctor, one of the biggest problems with all of this work is the fact that it's not easily accessible to doctors. Um, and so what we do is take all of this computational neuroscience work and bring it back into the 3D MRI space so the doctors can see what is happening. And the future, which we're looking at, is 3D simulation. So once being able to, um, once you've kind of shown it in 3D, being able to simulate various scenarios and see how the patient will respond to various therapies. That's the next major milestone, really, for us. But yeah, these are the big four technologies. <laughs> okay. Uh, give us a, a couple of specific examples to illustrate uh, what your AI looks for and how, uh, based on uh, uh, those measurements, it helps doctors to make a decision on what might be wrong with the patient or how to treat her. 
Yeah, so actually when we are talking about functional MRI, it's a huge multidimensional uh, signal extraction process. But the two major components that we look into is the activity which is happening locally in the brain and looking at how one part of the brain is talking to another part of the brain, which is known as functional connectivity. Now, when we talk about different parts of the brain talking to each other, each uh, of these connections has values. So we are talking about uh, millions of numeric values which are coming out. Now, there are certain sets of algorithms that we use. We are not taking a general uh, method. This is an ensemble method, we call it. Uh, we have made ensemble algorithms to extract these signals to reduce the number of dimensionality uh, present in the data set. And then we do a featured match. So if there are uh, one million numbers uh, which are coming out as the features for healthy controls and there are some X number of connectivity which is coming out for uh, disease, then we match it using uh, these features and the amount of match we get. That is what we say that there is probability of this person, there is X number of matches which is there with healthy control, 30% match with the healthy control and 70% match with the features in Alzheimer's. So we are using ensemble methods for uh, in the case of Alzheimer's. However, in case of pre-surgical planning, there are different sorts of algorithms that we are using. Hmm. Give us one example in the case of uh, applying your uh, technology to uh, psychiatry, since that's also one of the areas that you're working on. Yeah. So in psychiatry, it is even further the amalgamation of different modalities. It is not just uh, one modality that we are looking with. Uh, we are looking at structural differences along with the uh, functional differences. And uh, again, there is a level of layering. So there is a brain maps which are given by uh, several scientific societies, which are known as atlases. So we have overlaid several uh, atlases where we are taking out the brain signals uh, in different level of granularity in brain regions. So we are also considering very small part of the brain and uh, also considering it from the bigger perspective as a part of a functional group. So that gives us really great detail um, with a very granular detail on that. And uh, again, we have some ensemble methods for in psychiatry. Uh, for doing the classification. We have done it for schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder because both has uh, overlapping features when it comes to psychosis as a symptom in both of these diseases. So, yeah. In fact, uh, Hari, uh, if you look at the literature around uh, schizophrenia right now, there is an increasing um, increasing awareness that it is it is the individual, so think of a radio and like the individual parts are all okay, but it's the connection between different parts of the brain, which is garbled and which it's leading to, um, to catching the wrong signal. So this, so these are called disorders of disconnectivity. And in a lot of these uh, psychiatric order, disorders, what you see is this disconnectivity is the main marker of um one of the main markers, so Rimshin uh, will correct me here. So one of the, amongst neurogenetics, neuroimaging, neurotransmitters, one of the most uh, important out of these has been this level of disconnectivity that tells you that there 
is an issue that probably needs to be addressed. Um, so in clinical terms, when we talk of the psychiatric disorders, this is what is happening. Okay. Uh, if you if you step back and look at the fields in which you're working, uh, give us a sense of what are some of the most important advances that have been made in recent times uh, in the way uh, AI is applied uh, to mental health and neurosurgery. Yeah, so I would say it is more from the perspective of looking at brain as an organ, not just looking at it as uh, curing the symptoms. So if somebody has fever, that could be because of several reasons and how uh, the psychiatry and other disorders will look was from the perspective of symptom, treating the symptom. However, now, uh, since there is awareness and there is more and more research and understanding, doctors are trying to uh, recognize it as the doc, as the curing it from the part of the organ itself. That is one of the things which is leading to better treatment as well. And also, since AI is there and there is lots of computational power that we can use, or uh, this neuroimaging as the basis of recognizing and diagnosis. So it has helped a lot uh, than before. So these these were not very intuitive thing. My brain is still a very complex organ, and that's why we need to understand more and more in detail, which was not possible without such huge computational power before. And um, also, Hari, going back to your question, of what are some of the other ways in which AI has been used in these two fields that we are working in? So in mental health, you see a lot of, uh, lot of apps and a lot of uh, AI being used to understand the symptoms better. So the way I think about it is there is an outside the body. Like you essentially have three factors coming together in mental health. Um, one is your outside the body triggers. So maybe it is the way you interact with people that is triggering you or all of those environmental factors. And then there is your inside the body. Then there is the fact that how you react to these triggers. And then there's the inside the body, which is your neuroimaging, neurogenetics, etc. Now, a lot of the AI has really focused on the outside the body, making sure that the symptoms are captured properly, making sure that the symptoms are, uh, that even if a patient forgets, they, they go to a psychiatrist like once in a month or once in two months. And in between two episodes, if they forget some of the symptomatology, then being able to track that regularly, being able to track your food, um, uh, your mood, etc., and helping people make sense of it. So a lot of focus of the AI has been on outside the body, um, it, uh, capturing those triggers. What we do believe is that if you complement that with the inside the body, look, looking at neuroimaging, using the as Dripcha mentioned, AI on computational neuroscience, um, you can get a much better comprehensive view into the person. So that's in the psychiatry field. In the neurosurgery field, there are a bunch of uh, different ways in which it is used. But um, AI has been mostly focused on more detailed structural understanding of the brain. So using AI to demarcate a tumor much better or using AI to uh, segment a tumor more, much better. Those are some of the ways in which um, the AI in that has grown by leaps and bounds over the past few like years. But there are very few. In fact, we are one of the three or four or 
Now there are more companies coming across the world which are focusing on the function of the brain. So, yeah, this is to your question on the AI, where is it being used? Okay, uh, a couple of questions uh, more on your uh, entrepreneurial experiences. Uh, tell us a bit more about uh, what uh, got both of you to dive into an entrepreneurial venture. I mean, one of you is a very serious basic sciences uh, researcher, could have had a stellar career in academics, and the other one, uh, a serious technologist, already had a great career as a technologist. Both of you decided to start a business. Uh, what made you decide on that? That's a great question. Um, so I think uh, for me, at least, at least the, the fact is that I care a lot about the impact I'm making. And even though I had moved, so when I had moved from software to international development, the idea was I was more concerned about the impact of the software rather than the software, building the software, even though I loved the technical, deep technical details of operating system development. It's something that I really enjoy, but I was very interested in the impact factor. Now, working with governments, working with uh, international development organization gives you access to that kind of scale. However, it was a tad too slow for me. I think my, my vibe is really in the tech domain and I wanted to kind of get back to something that marries the two. And I think at that time is when I decided I want to maybe start off my own company and see what can happen with that. So that's my, my gist of my journey. But Ranjan. Yeah, so I was mentioning that uh, it is similar with me and then I also wanted to do something which will have some impact. I think every job has an impact and it's very serious. But since I was in healthcare and um, I wanted to see my research going on and coming out to a real life and helping people, that is where I felt only writing papers will not be satisfactory to me. And I would want to apply it in real world scenario. However, when I started doing some of the jobs, I felt that it is not translating in a way that I want to uh, do actually for healthcare field. So I thought that probably if I have something of my own, it will help uh, to make it, to bring it to the real world. And that is when I decided it was around 2018 when I was uh, struggling with this thought process. I had some time as well to think through it was almost the end of my phd as well and i was working as a consultant for another company so that was when i was struggling with all these words and i finally thought that i'll go ahead and have my own business hmm. uh, are there any uh, challenges uh, specific to building a deep technology company out of india oh there are many i think every day we run into challenges and I think that is the best part. Like we are solving so many things and that this is it. India has its own challenges, but I feel that it's a really good place as well because we get really good data set over here. The uh, reach is very great. We have, we know the Indian mentality. We know the people here and we can apply the uh, best thing here. We can serve for the Indian people first, maybe, because that's our country. Uh, so, yeah, I feel India is a really great place. We had this option of uh, having 
opening the company in Singapore first, but we thought that India will be a great place to start with. And yes, to your question of well, challenges, there are lots of challenges. I think a startup is like essentially an interdisciplinary effort. Um, even for a non-deep tech company itself is an interdisciplinary effort, but for a deep tech, it's a huge interdisciplinary effort. Our team consists of neuroscientists, product engineers, machine learning engineers, um, sales, marketing. It's just like a gamut of sets of people talking different languages. Um, so that's that's just making sure that everybody is understanding it in a space which is evolving so fast every day that itself is a huge challenge. But I think India, um, what we've also seen that the venture capital for deep tech uh, has been has been a little, at least for us, we were surprised that um, when we were talking to US-based investors or when we were talking to India-based investors, the, the risk appetite was extremely different. Um, what we saw outside was more like, hey, um, you're trying to solve a really interesting problem and you both seem well-suited to solve this problem. We would love to invest and see where that takes us. While in India, the question would really be, okay, how much have you already done? How many hospitals are you already working in? How many, how much revenue do you already have before people want to kind of invest in you? And I think that was a little bit of a surprise for us. Hmm. Uh, so tell us currently who your most important investors are. Sure, absolutely. Happy to, because we, yeah, absolutely. These are people who actually took a bet on our deep tech technology and we're in deeply grateful to them. Uh, so Entrepreneur First is the uh, set of people who had first invested in our pre-seed round. Our seed round currently is being led by Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs with contribution from Entrepreneur First, uh, Red Start and IKP Deep and IKP Bayrak Funds. Okay. Uh, overall, uh, you've raised uh, how much money so far? So um, our first round was for $55,000. It was just to start the company. And uh, our seed round is now a $750,000 round. Okay. Um, uh, one last question. Because uh, kind of uh, coming to the end of the time we have for this podcast. Uh, what are your uh, next immediate big priorities? Well, we are actually rolling out. So there are a couple of this thing. We are rolling out the Voxbox uh, platform with, uh, with various levels of reporting to hospitals and like working with them on validating and uh, further testing out our product. We are also uh, in the process of our grant on dementia is still going on. So our study there is going on on the side. We've also kind of built out our team. So really looking at making that into a cohesive whole. And I, I think we haven't met. Uh, so because of COVID, we had actually gone off. Um, we'd gone remote almost overnight. And uh, we are now kind of thinking of coming back at least, like figuring out ways to let the serendipity happen in an office, in a physical space. So I think that is something that we are really thinking about right now. So a lot of things that are happening, a lot of hospital partnerships that are in the works, all of this, along with making the technology work for the filing patents, all of these things are going on on the side. Yeah. I think in startup, it is really difficult to prioritize just one thing because it, uh, we have to choose when it will not be possible. So there are many, many parallel things happening in high priority. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much again for making time for this. More power to both of you. Uh, I certainly hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much, Hari. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, best of luck for your further ventures as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hari. It was really nice talking to you. That was Lena Emanuel and Rimjim Agrawal. That's it for this briefing. You can find all our podcasts on ForbesIndia.com and on your favorite podcast apps. I'm Hari Arakli. Thank you for listening.